<laughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Seb. Thank you, Lord, for the message that you have given him for us today. Lord, anoint his lips. And Lord, I just pray that we will be receptive of your word through Seb. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Good morning, everybody. Really good to see you. Um, we are starting a, a new series today called The One Another's. And so we finished out Mark. Uh, thank you to Joshua for doing that last week. And uh, we're starting a new series. So I kind of just time allowing, wanted to just set things up a little bit this morning and tell you kind of the direction we're going to go in and how that's going to work. So a few technical things. Uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, <clears throat> there are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. We're not going to do 59 sessions on this. You might be glad to know that. But we probably will do somewhere around 12, 13 sessions. But the way that we're going to do a series on a Sunday is that three out of every four will be in the series. And then the fourth Sunday of every month, we'll come away from the series and do things slightly differently on that particular Sunday. So that's how it's going to work. And then you have to think, we've got Christmas, so we'll come away for it um, during December as well. So this will actually take us into the new year. The 59 one another statements are commands in the New Testament about how we are to be as a church family, how we are to operate as a church family. And they are roughly broken into three categories, unity, love, and service of one another. There's a few that stand alone in their own kind of right, and we'll do those at the end. But broadly speaking, they fall into those three categories. And we'll start with love, because most often of the 59 one another statements, they are all to do with how we are to love one another. Just a few, just to kind of get us off the starting grid. Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Your version may say deeply, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, make your love increase and overflow for each other. And so on, and so on, and so on. So if I was to ask you a question, if you were marooned on a desert island uh, through a plane going down or something and you managed to survive, you'd never been to church, you'd never read a Bible, but one day there's certain pages that begin to wash up on the shore and so you're looking for reading material because not much else to do. And uh, in that you've got Acts and you've got some of the letters from Paul and you begin to read about how the Bible describes the church. Now, if you could close your eyes and think about those texts, what is the image that you would build up of the church if you had never had any experience of church prior to that? Like, how would that feel and what would that look like? And, and where would God be operating in that midst, in that community? And then compare that to your own church experience. Now, I want to say straight off the bat, I think Oakley is a really, really loving church. We've been to lots of churches. In 20 years of ministry, being on leadership, we've been to loads and loads of churches like many of you have. And I can say, Oakley is a really, really loving church. But does it love one another earnestly, deeply? Are we really, really concerned with making our love increase and overflow for one another? Do we love one another as if they are our own flesh and blood with this brotherly love. You know, if you've got siblings, I get on with my two siblings 
long story. It wasn't always the case, but I would literally do anything for them. You know, I would step out in front of a car for them, no problem, no questions asked. That's the kind of love that we're told that Paul tells us in Romans that we should foster for one another. And friends, this isn't just a suggestion. It's not like this is an add-on or we can lean into it. It is not time or location specific. This is nothing to do with culture. This is nothing to do with how families and communities operated back then. This is written and articulated in such a way that the writer of these scriptures, the Holy Spirit, through Christ, through the Father, and through the actual people who put pen to paper, it was intended that this is how the church would look and operate today. And so why is it important that we look at it? Well, I'll give you a few personal reasons. Honestly, um, when we came to Oakley, uh, first of all, don't tell anybody at St. Barnabas this, we went to St. Barnabas first to visit Henry, because he's the one that does the appointments. And we got to St. Barnabas, we'd never been to the area, and it was fine, but it wasn't kind of our thing at all. And we thought, oh, maybe, uh, we're not really sure. Then we came here and met with Mike for an hour. It felt like 10 minutes, but it was at least an hour. And one of the things that really, really spoke to me was that this church, what we are now sat in, however recently you came or whether you were part of the original planting team, was birthed in the spirit. So Oakley didn't start with a clever strategy. It didn't start with a bunch of money. It didn't start with kind of an operations manager and an ordained clergy and a youth worker. It started with a group of people who committed to worship and prayer. It was birthed in the spirit. But in this new season that we're going to go into, honestly, the temptation is that we come away from that and we do things that we know will work. And we invest in things that we know draw crowds. So we'll employ more staff and we'll up our kind of family offering and youth offering. We'll make the stage bigger and the worship band bigger and I'll try and grow my hair and get a top knot and lose enough weight and wear skinny ripped jeans. You know, all that stuff, all that stuff is good apart from the skinny jeans. They're never good. All that stuff is good, but is that really what is ordained in the scriptures? Is that really how the church is to operate? Is that meant to be the very essence of the church? And if it is, what happens when that stuff falls away? What are you left with? Now, if you remember back along um, a few weeks ago, and we've still got the slides, we looked at this scripture in Mark where Jesus is challenged about the behavior of his disciples, naughty disciples. And what was going on is that they didn't wash their hands before eating, which wasn't part of the Mosaic law. But the Pharisees were so outraged by this, they questioned Jesus and said, why don't your disciples wash their hands? And Jesus rebukes them really strongly. He says, you know, you make something that is actually tradition, something that you've invented, and you elevate it to be as if it's God-ordained. You've taken something which is a perfectly good idea, a perfectly good thing to do, and you've placed such importance on worship, in terms of worship that you've made it as if God said it himself. And then he says, but you have rejected the commands of God. You see, the Pharisees, they'd taken good ideas, staff, youth teams, slick presentation, and they'd made it so important to their worship 
but they neglected the things that God actually commanded them to do. And my question to us as a church family is, do we do the same thing? I don't know if we've got that slide, guys. And I think we do. Sometimes we place priority on things that actually aren't commanded. I know people that have left church because they didn't like the worship songs or they didn't like the length of the sermon. I know somebody who left church because they changed the color of the walls. True story. I know somebody who's left church because they don't particularly like the welcome. Now, all those things are important. They're good things, right? Washing your hands before a meal is a generally good thing. But we've been so conditioned to make these things God things. And yet, what is it that he's commanded us to do? Well, he's commanded us to make disciples. I've never known anybody leave a church because it's not making disciples. He's commanded us to go and baptize new believers. Never known anybody raise the fact that we don't have baptisms that often. He's commanded us to love God with such an extravagance and to love one another with such a depth. And nobody even batters an eyelid because we place so much importance and stock on the stuff that are actually just traditions, even if they're good ideas, even if they're things we could do. And so, folks, my heart for us is that as we step into this new season, we wouldn't be drawn and tempted to this list on the, less, on the left. But rather, we would once again realign ourselves and say, what is it he has commanded us to do? What is the depth and the essence of this church body? What is it that he ordained in the scriptures? And let's begin to lean into that. Because ultimately... That's what we have to be built upon. Ultimately, that has to be at the center. We can do all those other things, and we can do them really well, and they may even work, but it's not what he has ordained in the scriptures. Kierkegaard, who was a famous Danish theologian, said this in the mid-1800s. He was looking at the Danish church, and what he noted was that all the churches had lost confidence in the boldness of the gospel and that they began to water down what they were saying. And he said this, we should close every church today and make them 24-hour entertainment centers. He said that 150 years ago. I think that was prophetic. And folks, you may think, well, is that, is that true? Well, let me put it to you this way. What if the local mosque tomorrow said, we're going to try and win people over by giving away a free phone to all the new students that are moving into the area? Churches do that. We would look at that and go, well, the mosque has clearly lost confidence and belief in what it is that they say they believe. What if the local synagogue engaged in a program of, I don't know, trying to win new converts, but they never actually talked about the message, the essence of what it is they believe? We'd say, well, they've lost confidence. They don't believe what they say they believe. And so often in church life, we're doing that. We're trying to find the stuff on the left to try and make us relevant or to make us cool or to make us palatable or to make us more politically correct, to try and get people in the door. And I'm not sure that it works. Honestly, I don't think it really works. And that's not the direction that we can go in.
But why is it that God ordains this and why should we be pursuing this? Well, the first one, as I said, it's because God has commanded it. Folks, uh, the way these are written are not advisory. Um, and as I said before, they're not time-specific or location-specific. They are commands to us. And there's a word, when we, a word for what we do when we reject his commands. It is something to be taken seriously. It is odd that we've given ourselves a free pass on this in the West. As I've sort of hinted at, if we go to church and we don't see a church that is loving one another deeply and in line with the way that the scriptures have commanded us, most of us don't batter an eyelid, but we'll talk and comment on other things that aren't as important. But primarily the reason that we're going to go after this is because he has commanded it. It is really, really straightforward. The second reason is this. It's because it is supernatural. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but everything on that left list we could do among us with our skills and resources. And some of us could do it really well. But none of it really requires faith. But look around this room now. Some people you'll think, I could love them deeply. I could love them like a brother and sister. But there'll be other people you don't know. There'll be other people that might annoy you. Other people you don't have much in common with. And yet the scriptures seem to be pretty clear, Luke, that you, are to, <laughs> that you are to love them like that. Not just the people that you connect with and have something in common with. That that's how we are to love one another. Now the good news is, you can't do it. I can't do it. I'm a minus 10 introvert. Isla's a plus 10 extrovert. I don't even know how that works. But... I, I, I need to be in the cave sometimes. But I know the only way that I can love people, or at least try to lean in this, try to strive for this, is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And folks, my dream and ambition for this church as we go forward is not that people would look back. Similar to now, actually. You know, I was talking to Honor recently and, and others. When you look back at the church that has happened here, there isn't necessarily a great explanation for it other than God. And I would love that to be the same in the next 20 years. That when people talk about Oakley, like, they didn't seem to have much of a strategy. It wasn't very slick there. You know, things weren't particularly well organized all the time, but something of God was happening in that place. Something supernatural was taking place in that community and in that church family. Isn't that what we want to lean into? I'm so done with the other stuff. We're doing it because it's supernatural. Thirdly, it's foundational to mission. It is not so that we create a happy, holy huddle. The 59 one another's are not given to us as commandments so that we would just be a wonderfully neat and tidy place. By the way, it will be messy. But actually, if you look at in John 13 and 17, Jesus is really clear that this is primary to mission. So when we talk about those outside of the doors and we talk about our local community, he says, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. But in John 17, he says this, I pray for these, but also for those to come also, that's you and I, that they would be perfectly one as I and the Father are one. Do you get that? That's such a bonkers prayer. Jesus' prayer for us 2,000 years ago was that we would be perfectly one 
like he and the Father are one. I don't even understand that. There'd be such unity in this place. And he says, and by this, the world would know, they will know that I came. That our unity would be a sign to those outside of these doors that he came. That when people encounter us, when people see us out and about, when people come into this place, that our unity, our love for one another would be so tangible, it would be a sign that Jesus came. Do you know how much we invest in materials that try and teach people that Jesus came? Do you know how many courses I've been involved with over 20 years that are trying to get the message across that Jesus came? Now, again, they're not bad things. Okay, washing your hands is not a bad thing. But the primary thing is that our unity and our love for one another would tell people that Jesus came. How more effective would our courses be if they were rooted in that kind of community. Philippians 1, 27 to 28. Uh, let me just find it. It says this, Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you and absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm, firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Jesus says, I want to know that you are so unified that you are so walking side by side with one another, that you are so one, that in doing this, this will be a sign of destruction for non-believers. And again, that doesn't make sense to me. Again, I've spent so many minutes and hours trying to kind of tiptoe around the issue that if you don't know Christ, you are going to a lost eternity, and that place is called hell. And yet in the scriptures it says, but actually your unity itself will be a sign and a testament to them. I don't know how that works. It doesn't make sense. Maybe that's a good thing. Our unity and love for one another is fundamental to mission. We're doing it because it underpins a culture of discipleship. Paul says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in Paul saying that, we can assume that he was living a life of such that people knew how he lived. People understood how he imitated Christ. He was on show, available for people to be around. In Deuteronomy 6, it tells uh, the readers that the way to teach your children the fundamental commands of loving God with all your heart, soul, and spirit is to talk to them whilst on the road in normal life, in the normal rhythms, to be available. How did Jesus disciple his disciples? Was it a once a month meeting at Costa Coffee? Was it some kind of coaching program that expired after 12 sessions? No, he lived with them. He did life with them. It was discipleship on the road. How can we do that if we're not in a community that is open with one another, that is loving one another deeply, 
that forgives one another, that confesses sins to one another. You see, it fosters this culture where discipleship can really happen. It gives us a framework for discipleship to take place and be authentic. But there's reasons why already some of us will feel that we don't want to do this. And the first is because it's messy. And relationships are hard and messy. Are they not? Even in church life, believe it or not. Relationships are hard and messy. Some of you will know what it is to be betrayed and let down. Some of you will know what it is to have put your trust in somebody and then to see that squashed. But folks, the reality is this. God is relational. In the foundations of the earth, he was relational. In Genesis, we see the three together as creation is breathed out. There is something about relationship that isn't just accidental. It was God-ordained that we should be in relationship with one another. He is relational. He relates to us in a relational way. He is not absent or far off. And in the same way, he calls us to be relational. Another reason why uh, we don't always like this stuff is because we breathe in the cultural oxygen of being an individual. Let me start as a gift of tongues. Individualistic society. You see, we live in a culture right now that says, you do you. You dream up, you sum up, you clarify your own identity. And you exist within that. But the scriptures tell us actually that identity is bestowed upon us. That God gives us identity and identity occurs and fosters and cultivates within the midst of community. And so folks, if you're feeling, well, I don't really want to go this way, just be aware that we've been breathing in that oxygen for a long time. That tells us that you can go alone. You can find everything you need on YouTube. You can listen to the best sermons. You can click friends away, you can click friends on, you can define who you are, your parameters, and all those things, and that's what culture tells us we can do today. And I want to say it just doesn't work. That is not the way that God has wired us, and it's not the way he's ordained us to be. Another reason why we don't find it easy is because we tend to lean towards production and tasks. Some of us like numbers. Some of us like to be able to see a clear progression. We had this, and now we have this. And so when we talk about relationships, and we talk about actually we want to see something that is going on among us, and it may be messy, that doesn't always kind of lean into those of us that really like production and tasks. I want to tell you, if you're a production and task-orientated person, bless you, I am so glad you're here, because I am not. And we need both. We need those who know how to do administration and process and organization. We need that. The church in Acts 6 and 7 needed that when they had the issue with the Hellenistic widows. We do need that, but we can't rely on that. It has to be relational. Another reason is because we're busy. We're too busy. Sometimes we can give an evening a week. And I don't know what to tell you on that. I don't know what to say on that. Other than try and find an opportunity. Find an opportunity to make steps. Send a text to somebody. 
Arrange to meet for a coffee. Check in with somebody. Make yourself available. Find those windows. And folks, without kind of pushing this too hard, again, if we're too busy to obey, there is a word for that. And it's called sin. It just is. So if you're too busy, find and think of ways to engage with this, even if it's just one or two people. Another reason why we can struggle is because for many, we haven't received it yet. And so for many, we were raised in families where this wasn't modeled to us. For some of us, we've seen this done badly in church life. I don't know all of your stories, and some of us have been involved in other religious organizations, and we've seen abuses around this stuff. And folks, once again, the invitation of Christ is to move beyond this. There is healing, but so often healing occurs when we've made a decision to engage in a new thing. So often we're waiting for the healing before we'll go forward. And just, just my experience, in my experience, honestly, sometimes we have to just go forward and then the healing comes. So if you're somebody who doesn't find it easy to let others in, if you're somebody who doesn't find it easy to make time, and some of that's to do with previous wounding and previous hurt, I want you to know that there is 100% a call of Christ on you. There is 100% healing available. But it doesn't often come first. Often it comes in the moment where you trust him and move forward. So that's just some of the reasons I feel this is important to us. And as we engage in this uh, in the next several weeks, uh, there'll be different styles. I think sometimes uh, we'll be a bit more discussional, a bit like we were when we looked at this particular scripture. Uh, different people are going to be coming to preach again, which is wonderful. And um, in all these things, we want to continue to be open to what he's saying. And so I know some of you are in small groups already. Uh, is it two plus fours? No, what is it? Two to four. Two plus four. Two to fours. Can you just put your hand up if you're in a two to four? Okay, a small number of you. You know, another thing we're going to have to look at is how we do this in the long term. And uh, in us doing this, it's a bit like kind of teaching you to swim. And I could be up here and saying, you know, you need to swim by putting your arms over and whatever. But until we actually chuck each other in the water, none of this is really going to make a difference. So one of the things we have to be praying about is how we find places and ways to model this and to actually do this within the church community. And if you're in a two to four, that's great. That's a great place to start. If you're not in one and you'd like to be, then come and talk to me. If you'd like maybe to meet with an older Christian who's more experienced. We have loads of those here, don't we, Tony? Who are very, very willing to to invest in. Come and talk to me. But think of ways that you can begin to connect more with one another and to engage with the 59 commands that have been given to us. I'm going to pray. It's 12 o'clock and then I'll hand back to Anna. Father, we thank you for your word to us and Lord, I pray as we set out on this new series over these next few months, Lord, I pray that this would be vibrant to us, that it would be real to us, this would be more than just a head knowledge. 
This isn't an exercise in trying to learn more just for the sake of knowing more, but it would actually land in such a way uh, that we would see a tangible outflow from your word. And Father, for all of us, would you convict and shape our hearts? For the introverts among us, would you help us to find time to be with others? For those who are just so busy, would you energize us once again, again, to find windows where we can connect with others? For those of us who are just concerned about opening up and being vulnerable, Father, I pray that you would bring healing, but I pray you'd bring boldness and courage to step out from that place as well. And Lord, mostly, we desire your presence among us. And Father, in this body and in this season, may we see something of your supernatural love stirred here. May we see something of your supernatural unity stirred in this place. May we see something of your supernatural servanthood towards one another being lived out practically in this church, and may it be a sign of your coming, and may it be a sign for those who are going to a lost eternity. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.